Good morning. <clears throat> I'll be uh, speaking uh, about Matthew 20, 1 through 16, so we can read that. It's the uh, parable of the vineyard owner. Matthew 20, 1, 16, 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into the vineyard. About nine in the morning he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, You also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, Why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, You also go and work in my vineyard. When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came, and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who has hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. I have to say, preaching is an awesome and terrible thing. I think it was John Wesley who used to throw up each time before he started preaching to realize that your interpreting the Word of God uh, is not something to take lightly. And so that's partly what I'll be preaching about today. Um, I know every good thought that comes to me comes from the Holy Spirit, but I'm a uh, fallen and um, a man plagued with original sin, as Damon has been preaching. So not every thought that comes to me is a good thought. So I have to have a way to test them. A while back, I was talking with a friend who was not really satisfied with the traditional explanation of this parable. Not that he thought there were, that the traditional explanations were wrong, just that there was still something a little bit unsatisfying. That's a little understandable. The parable that starts out with, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like, and ends with workers toiling for a day at the same wage as those who worked for an hour, leaves us with some questions, despite having heard some really good sermons on it. So after the standard grace-centered explanation, I offered an idea that seemed to come out of the blue, meaning it was either inspired by the Spirit or maybe I just made it up. How could I have a reasonable certainty? You know, if you Google search the difficult parables, you'll really set your head spinning. They seem to be particularly fertile ground for molding the Word of God to whatever one would like. Everyone from social justice warriors to the various cults want to make this parable their own. And in the age of the new Babel, that is Google, it's even more important to have some guidelines to test these interpretations. Once I decided to preach on the idea, I had shared about this parable. The testing of it became crucial, so I thought I'd make the focus of my sermon about the ways in which Damon has offered consistent insights for understanding the bigger picture of Scripture nearly every week. I'm not offering a complete list, just a couple of the things that, he, that regularly guide his teaching and help me really greatly in understanding the Scripture. The first principle is that it's important to understand who's being addressed 
And part B, never read just one verse. Read as much around the verse as possible to put it in context. And I don't think these two points can be emphasized enough. In a book, the Bible, written to have meaning in every age, generation, and corner of the world, it's critical to try to first understand how the original audience in each story would understand the words. After all, it's not just a book of wise sayings, but the story of God's call to a specific people. So, for example, when we studied Paul's letters to the Gentile church in Corinth, one of Damon's key points about understanding Paul's meaning is knowing the author, a Jewish convert, and the audience, Greek pagans. But most of the rest of scripture is written for Israel, since God chose and molded that specific people. Jesus spoke almost exclusively to the Jewish people, and his first calling was to redeem Israel, not to start a church. Any of his teachings have to find their ground first in that fact, I believe. So though many meanings can flow outward from the original, scripture should at first be understood in a way its original audience might have understood it. This really helps keep any final interpretation or other interpretations from getting too far out of hand. A second principle we hear frequently from Damon is that God acts and we respond. Maybe the most important of the principles in my view, since it orients and focuses really every story in the Bible. I usually think of myself as the prime actor with God kind of looking down and shaking his head in disgust or sometimes giving me a helping hand in my pursuits. But that's backwards. And if I orient any story in that direction, creation, acting, and God cleaning up the mess, that that is if he even chooses to get involved, I'll miss the entire sovereign plan of the Creator who's working out all good things in Christ. Which brings me to the third principle I'd like to look at. Scripture is united by the structure of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, being carried out by the Creator who acts first. If we miss one of those elements, the others will distort everything. So, for example, as Damon pointed out last week, if we have the goodness of creation and no fall or original sin, then evil is explained by things like corrupting influences of society. Or if we skip the goodness of creation and move right to the fall, then everything we see around us, all matter, is basically corrupt by its nature, and we get Greek Gnosticism. If we skip redemption as part of God's plan and coming through his will in Christ, then we become our own redeemers and have to figure out a way to get ourselves back to the garden, as Joni Mitchell famously wrote in 1970. So let's look at the parable using these three guides and see how my interpretation, which I'll reveal at the end, holds up. We could see from Matthew 19 that Jesus is in part addressing the concern his disciples have about their fate. So reading backwards one verse to try to surround it as much as possible. After, after all, Jesus is a new prophet for whom they have left their old lives and given up everything. The other listeners in the crowd were most likely Jewish leaders, perhaps Pharisees and Sadducees. For all of them, the vineyard metaphor in general would have had rich meaning. For example, in Isaiah 5-7, we read, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. Okay, good news so far for the leaders in Jesus' day, but it's about to take a bad turn. Continuing on, Isaiah 5-7 again. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Okay, not so good. God God calls his people stiff-necked perpetrators of violence and promises to bring those who are not a nation into the fold. 
While making a similar point in explaining God's inclusion of the Gentiles, Paul starts by quoting Moses, then Isaiah, in Romans 10.19. Romans 10.19 reads, I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. That should sound, that should sound a bell regarding our parable. It would apply to all the workers in this story of the, the vineyard owner and the workers, but particularly those hired at the end of this end, since by that time of day they were certainly not expecting to be hired at all. But you might say, the early vineyard workers were just the first hired. They weren't perpetrators of bloodshed. So how might this parable about workers relate to them and the, and the often violent unfaithfulness of Israel? To, ans- <clears throat> to answer that, we need to focus on the second principle, I think. That is, that God is the one who acts, and we are the ones who react. It's not the vineyard workers who are the focus of this parable, but the vineyard owner. Every time I read this, I'm always focused on the workers and their grievance. But on every level, they're the secondary subject, the ones who respond. They are hired told where to work, and given pay. They are not the primary actors God is. So it's not important that the workers in the parable embody every characteristic of Israel's unfaithfulness in order to equate the two. Details about the workers' motives are not the focus. Rather, details about the vineyard owner and as it relates to God's actions, those are the thing, that's the thing that's critical. So going back to Israel's story, even if they had been completely faithful in their duty to God, It was God's plan for Israel to be a light to the Gentiles. In either scenario, God is going to bring the Gentiles into his kingdom. Why? Because God is the one who acts according to his good plan. Our disobedience might make the whole process a little uglier, but it will not thwart God's intention. So if we understand this parable as Jesus' audience might have, and put God as the main actor, it seems pretty likely they would have heard something like this. Just because you can trace your lineage to one of the early tribes of Israel, don't expect special treatment. I have others to bring in whose inclusion will anger you. And so, as it says in the sentence before the parable begins, and the last sentence of the parable, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. But, parables are conceived in poetic language, not merely as a statement of a single principle, So it seems pretty likely that there are additional meanings to this parable that will still be reasonable and biblically faithful. So at this point, we've gotten what I would call the heavy lifting out of the way by establishing God as the prime actor and understanding the parable as its original audience might have, if their eyes were opened. So now, moving on, we can explore how this parable might fit into the model of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Because this model is so broad, it has a greater potential to distort, you can push things further uh, into your own desires. So that's why I started with the other two first, to give, it, to give the, the understanding of the parable a grounding. But once we have a solid grounding, I think it's, it's okay to, to go on and look for other ways that the parable can speak to us. Remember the story about the tr- interpretation, my interpretation at the beginning. That came from looking at this parable through creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, through that model. It was an exciting thought, but if I had started with that interpretation, instead of looking closely through the other two methods, I wouldn't feel as certain that I really understood the parable. 
I have to understand to whom the parable was initially addressed, how they might have understood it, and how God as the primary mover drives the story. Then I can begin to spin out the poetic language and see additional meanings through metaphor and God's overarching plan for creation. So let's do that. It's pretty easy to see any biblical story that centers on a garden as being linked to the original garden. Here we find a vineyard and a vineyard owner, which would seem logically to point to God and to his original creation. So we have creation. But something's wrong in the story. Those who should naturally be tending the garden are sitting around, detached from their calling. Aimless, if you will. The natural communion between image bearers that we find in Genesis and the vineyard creator in the vineyard has been broken. Consequently, they're not in the vineyard as they should be. So in this parable, we also have a reflection of the fall, creation and fall. But the vineyard owner is calling them to their rightful place and duties in the vineyard, starting with a long lineage and ending with workers who could have and maybe should have been passed over. None of the workers is coming to the vineyard owner seeking work. They are all just sitting in the square. The vineyard owner is providing the vineyard, providing the work, and calling them to it. Here we see their inactivity being redeemed by the vineyard owner who calls them to the garden, and he treats them all equally by paying them the same. In that action, we see the traditional post-resurrection interpretation of the parable, that is, the focus on grace. Though in truth, grace suffuses the entire story of scripture from beginning to end, but, <clears throat> but when the vineyard owner commits the scandal of generously giving far more than the last workers deserve, the element of generous grace can no longer be denied. God is merciful in all that he does, and his grace is evidenced by the vineyard owner's generosity to all of the workers. But here's where the rub comes. It still somehow seems a little unfair that the first set of workers toiled for 12 hours under the sun, while the last worked in the cool evening shade for an hour. It is all God's grace that should be sufficient for us, but maybe it's just human nature that there's still something that itches about that. It still seems a little unsettled. Sometimes with God's mysterious word, we, we might just have to give up and say, well, we just don't understand it fully now, but hopefully someday it will be revealed to us. But it might also be okay to reflect a little more to see if we can find scripturally sound explanations that serve to illuminate God's glory. So knowing that the vineyard owner, God, is the focus of the story and his grace is the heart of it helps. We focus less on the workers, which is a good thing, but something still seems off to any of us who've had to toil for pay. So let me offer two ideas that help me get past this, past my corrupted objections to the grace explanation. The money that the vineyard owner gives, which is a metaphor for grace, is more valuable than the idea of mere money could possibly suggest. Infinitely more valuable to us and infinitely more costly to God. When you are paid with a currency that has infinite value, how do you measure your efforts against that currency? If I work an hour, two hours, 12 or 1,200, how can that labor compare to the worth of something of unending value? And how can I demand more if I have already been given everything there is? This grace-based currency is given value because the subject, complete, eternal, timeless, infinite God of creation, has lowered himself into creation and sacrificed himself to give the currency value. 
So what more could the first work, group of workers been given? There is literally nothing more in the universe. Secondly, if we look at restoration, at the restoration part of the creation, fall, redemption idea, it might be possible to imagine a restored creation in which payment is not the end. We can taste a little bit of this now with work that we enjoy, but in the end it will be complete. Rather, the work itself is the reward. So when we are redeemed and restored to our rightful place in the new creation, those who have worked longest are actually the most blessed, since they will have joyfully acted out their calling. When God finishes his work, the work of eradicating original sin, and we are in communion with God and his created order as we were originally intended, then the earth won't fight back as it has since the curse. Tending the garden will be a pleasure. Our bodies won't ache, and work itself will be a form of communion. The idea of payment will cease to exist, and both the first and the last will know the unending blessing of following their true calling in perfect communion with God. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for the comfort that it gives us, for the knowledge of your goodness, for the knowledge of your grace, for the hope that we have in your new creation because of the mercy you show us in this creation. Lord, please be with us as we go through difficult times. Help us not to fear. Help us to look to you in all things to accept your grace and to be blessed by your mercy. We ask in Jesus' name.